right, good evening, everybody. Hey, it's a beautiful day to be a child of God, amen? It's good to see you here. You know how I know Andy didn't read that ahead of time? He almost skipped over my joke, and then he laughed at it. Many, many years ago. That was funny. That was funny. Hey, if you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 16. That's, that's where we're going to be. I, I do want to say thank you for being here this, this evening. Because I have missed people. I really have. I am a people person, and the longer this COVID thing went and the less I was seeing people, the more I was feeling introverted and in my shell, and I needed, I needed people. So if I get a little overexcited this evening, I'm sorry. It's just so good to see all of you guys here. So thank you so much for, for joining us. I want to say thank you to the elders and to Andy and to anybody else who had a decision in, in bringing me in here. And a big reason I want to say thank you is because uh, I know that I'm 22, and I just graduated, so I'm a little green, and I know that you don't know what you're getting yet. You know, after tonight, you'll make the decision of, you know, you'll go say, like, hey, you can bring him back, or no, you can't bring him back, but tonight we're in special territory, because we don't really know each other. But here's the thing, my job is to preach the word to you, my job is to show you something in scripture that helps you understand your relationship with God better, understand who God is better, and that by the end of this, where you're at point A right now, you're not in the same spot that you were. Hopefully we can talk about something tonight that helps you to grow, helps you to change a little bit, helps you to get closer with the Lord a little bit more. So again, for the billionth time, thank you for being here. Because I'm going to enjoy this. I hope, that, I hope that you will as well. So the lyric that inspired my topic for the evening, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." So my topic is, what's so amazing about grace? Well, it inspires fear, and it relieves fear. And as I said, the text is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 16. So we're going to read through that. Go ahead, starting in verse 11, it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I'm going to read that again. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves... It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So that might not have made sense to you. Totally, if you, haven't, if you haven't read that in a long time. And here's why. What we just did was the equivalent of, say you, you, know, you went out to a restaurant. Say you went to McAllister's. Andy and his family took me out to McAllister's tonight. And then we, we, we walk into to the McAllister's and everybody in the restaurant is in the middle of an absolute brawl. And you have no idea what happened, who said what, why anybody's fighting, and if it's going to end anytime soon so you know if you need to get out the door or if you can go ahead and wait for your sandwich. You don't have the context. 
something is happening, there's a fight going on, and you don't have the context. There's something going on in 2 Corinthians. There's a fight happening in 2 Corinthians that it's easy for us to pass over because, well, we're pretty far removed from it. So please know that there's a little bit of language that we're going to encounter this evening that doesn't totally have to do something, doesn't totally have something to do with our topic, but it's important to what's going on because Paul is dealing with, you could call it a coup. There are false teachers in Corinth. They are trying to turn the Christians there in the church of Corinth against apostolic authority. They're telling the church in Corinth that what Paul says, don't worry about. In fact, Paul's a little crazy. We shouldn't listen to what he has to say. And so he's combating this. And it goes back. It really does. It goes back. If, if, if you go home tonight and you decide that you want to read through 2 Corinthians or at least through chapter 6, what you'll see is hints of the argument in chapters 1 and 2. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he deals with this question, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And then that follows on through as he's defending himself and defending his ministry. So I, I say that to say this. Something is happening here, and in verses 11b through 13, you might be like, what? What's going on? There's something bigger happening. So you'll have to broaden out uh, if, if, if you want a, a fuller understanding of, of what it is that's happening. I'm sure, you know, that you've never had to deal with infighting in a church before, right? That doesn't happen. But uh, you may realize that whenever infighting does happen, it is fairly common, as someone's trying to gain leverage, to discredit the authority of another person, maybe even sometimes to discredit the sanity of another person in order to get their way. So that's what's going on. And so now maybe we'll just have a little bit of empathy for Paul as we go on through as he's trying to defend himself. So we, we get into verse 11. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I'm going to ask you a question. It's okay for you to answer me. Uh, this is a little test in hermeneutics. When you see the word, the transition word, therefore, what do you do? Oh, somebody. Somebody's got to say it. What do you do? What's it there for? What's it, oh, hey, what's it there for? Hey, that's cool. I like that. I hadn't heard that before. What's it there for? And uh, how would we know what it's there for? We'd look up. We read what happened beforehand. So, you know, I told you a little bit about the historical side of things, just a tad, but there's also a literary side of things that we need to read and understand. We can't just jump up right in the middle of Paul's argument. We can't go all the way back to chapter 3, but we can back up a little bit to the beginning of chapter 5. So if you would, go back to the beginning of chapter 5 with me. And, and, and Paul says this, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, 
Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. Why? Because of the confidence and because of the guarantee and the hope for the heavenly dwelling. We are always, uh, sorry, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Why? Why do we make it our aim to please Him? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The fear of the Lord. Why why is it that he sees fit to persuade others? Because he knows that all, and he means all, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That we must give an answer for the things that we have done. Now, is this new to you? No. No. Think back to Matthew 25. There's a judgment scene in Matthew 25, right? And and there, the sheep are being separated from the goats before the throne. And what is it that that they're being judged on? Did you give water to the thirsty? Did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you help the sick? Did you visit the prisoner? Yes? No? And separates them on their sides. According to what they had done. That's not the only spot. You guys remember in Revelation 20. John gives us a beautiful picture of the judgment scene that God showed him. And there it is. All people of every tongue and nation. And they're before the throne. And the books are opened. And they're judged on what? The Bible says in verses 12 and 13 of Revelation chapter 20 that they were judged, the phrase is, according to what they had done. According to what they had done. We catch a glimpse here of how grace inspires fear a little bit. Or maybe we should say the absence of grace. Because what does Paul know about the the fear of the Lord? He knows that every person is going to have to give an account and be judged for the things that they did in their life. And if they're not right with God, then it will not go well, right? If we don't have the Lord's grace covering us and the forgiveness that is given to us through that grace, then giving an account for everything that we had done 
It really, don't, it really might not be a pleasant experience. And you know what's interesting is even though that kind of sounds scary, even though that kind of sounds frightening, Paul doesn't sound afraid, does he? Paul sounds, in fact, hopeful, doesn't he? In that text that we just read, 1 through 11, is there anywhere that it seemed like Paul was afraid of the Lord? No. He was happy. And so we can take a step back and we can look at the language. Because the language does not require that we look at this, uh, the, the fear of the Lord here in verse 11. The language does not require that we look at it as, as being afraid. Okay? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip all of the Greek. You know, that's Greek to all of us. Go back to Hebrew. The word for fear or reverence is yare. Okay? And yare means fear, reverence, respect. We see it at the end of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 12, when Solomon says that the whole duty of man is to what? To fear God and obey his commandments, right? That's what we're here for. That's the whole thing. That's all we need to do. All we need to do is fear God and obey his commandments. But Solomon doesn't say that in the sense of we need to fear God and be afraid of God as in shaking in our boots. We're not afraid as if we take just a little step off, then we're going to have to deal with the wrath. He means it in the sense of respect. To respect God. To revere God as our sovereign creator. He is the authority in our world, isn't he? And Solomon says that we need to obey him. He is our Lord. He established everything around us. He has absolute power to create and to shape and to act in our lives, in our world today. He set the standards for the way that we should live. We live by His rules. He expects us to do so. His values need to be ingrained in our hearts and burned deeply into our minds. And they should be because He made us in His image. And so to fear God and obey His commands isn't to be afraid of God, but it's to respect God. It is to walk with God because He is our Creator. He is our Father. So this is why Paul says in verse 9, whether we are at home or away, whether we are here on this earth or whether we are up in heaven, we make it our aim to please Him as our Creator, as our Father, as our Potter. We are His clay. And we should make calculated efforts to please the Lord as we take each step. 
So like Paul, you know, we need to be persuading others. We need to be willing to share who God is. Why? Because all, and Paul means all, have to give an account for the things done in the body. Our God is incredible. Our God is beautiful. He is perfect. He is merciful. He is graceful. He is incredible. He is our Father. And with Him on our side, we can never fail. We need to follow Him. We all, and I mean all, need to follow Him. Because whether we like it or not, whether we want to accept it or not, we will appear before the judgment seat. And we need to make sure that we are covered in what we need to be covered in whenever we approach the throne. And you know, sometimes saying something like that makes people feel kind of repulsed. They, they, it makes them feel like the preacher and his God are harsh. However, you know, I don't say this in any way to make it seem like life needs to be very strict or that, like, that God is a bully and that we need to be afraid of him and how he is going to react to our actions. What I'm saying is that our Father in heaven is somebody that we need to make proud. That, that we need to walk in a way that pleases him. Because he is our God. And I also recognize this. Sometimes it's hard to say something. It's, it's hard to preach this kind of thing. And it not sound like I'm preaching some sort of uh, works-based salvation. It's not about that. It's not about that. We are saved by grace through faith, right? But we need to understand. We need to understand that we are responsible for what we do in this life. And that will answer for it. So that's, that's the first way that we see grace sort of inspire fear. Or again, perhaps the absence of it. The understanding that we need it. We need that grace in order to be pure before the Lord. So let's, let's keep going and see what else we, we see in the text. So this is where we run back into the thing that we started out talking about with sort of the divisions and the coup that Paul is having to deal with. Eleven, uh, the second part of 11 says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Right, you see what he's saying? That you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So, this is the, so now we're tying back to Paul's reasons for ministry, the heart of man, and the uh, actions that we are going to be accountable for, not just lip service, right? And so he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Beside ourselves, meaning, you know, like if, we, if, if, if we're out of our minds, if you think that we are out of our minds, if you think that we are crazy, which he is saying this because 
This would be an accusation against him. He's defending himself, right? If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. What we are doing is for the Lord. Our actions for you, they're for the Lord. You might think that we're crazy, but I'm acting for God. I am doing the Lord's work. That's what Paul's saying. But then contrary, he says, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. We're doing this for you. We want you to grow. We want to see you change. We want to see you grow close. If Paul didn't care, if he wasn't doing this for God, and if he wasn't doing it for them, then we would not have this letter to begin with. So Paul is defending his ministry just the way that he does uh, previously in the book. And we move on, and Paul says something spectacular. We're, we're going to get into this. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. I'm reading out of the ESV. I'm not sure exactly what you're you know, what you may be reading out of, and, and, and I'm not sure if it says uh, controls. I didn't, I didn't stop to look around at other translations and see what it says. Because when I saw that, I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. And I went back and I, I was reading in my Greek Testament, and I said, well, that doesn't quite fit what Paul is trying to say. So, so let's look at this a little bit. Because his control's right, and maybe we can look at the language just a little bit and see if, if that helps us. The word is suneke. Suneke. And, and it can mean to control. That is true. The, 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 this was not a, an egregious miss, okay? It can, it can mean to control, but it doesn't quite hit what Paul is trying to say. Suneke can mean control, but it, it, it means like to, to pressure or to compress, or to compel, or even to afflict. Like, do you feel the weight of the word upon you as we are talking about it? The, the, the intense pressure. Paul is feeling squeezed. Let, let, let's look around. You guys remember back in Philippians 1, chapter, uh, verse 23. Paul is talking about how he is, is hard-pressed. Uh, about what he's going to do because he, he, he wants to go home, he wants to go to heaven, but he also wants to stay and labor for you guys. He's like, oh, he's like in and out of the door. He doesn't know if he wants to go or if he wants to stay, and he wants to stay because he loves the church in Philippi and he loves Christians. He wants to be able to help as much as he can, but don't we all want to go to heaven? The word, suneke. Specifically there, sunekomai, but suneke. Feeling hard-pressed is how it was translated over there. The pressure. Oh, the severity of the tension. Because he doesn't know which way to go. Because he wants to stay in both. Does that, does that sort of make sense? Yeah. So Paul says, for the love of Christ, let's say compels. Okay, I, I think that, that looking at controls and, and looking at the pressure and looking at everything, we, we'll, we'll say compels. Because 
Compels would be intense pressure that causes him to act, right? If you're compelled to do something, something inside, sorry, I keep hitting this thing. Something inside of you is giving you such an intense emotion and you need to act. So let's say compels. For the love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. You know, we can also get in the language to understand this a, a little more. One has died for all, therefore all have died. Let me tell you, I think I procrastinated the most on this lesson because of this phrase right here. What does that mean? Because we concluded that one has died for all, therefore all has, have died. What, is, what does that mean? I was telling John that this is what I was wrestling with, and I was, I was looking around, and... And then one thing, one thing kind of made the light bulb go off for me. The word for, this one, uh, that one has died for. The word is huper. And huper, it means for, it can also mean instead of. And that's, that's, that's I don't know, maybe you guys all got that. But then I, it clicked for me. Wait, okay. So one has died for all, or one has died instead of all, meaning like in the place of. One has died for all. Therefore, Paul is saying that means, that means this, all have died. Christ died for all because all had died. And he took their place. Because everybody was in a condition of death, Christ died for all. I wish Paul would have been a little more clear on that, but does that make sense? Think about this, Ephesians chapter 2. For you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And he goes through like following the prince of the power of the air and the, the course of this world. And But God. But God. God made you alive. You were dead. But God made you alive. We were all in the state of death because we had sinned. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, correct? And we know that the wages of sin is death, correct? Because we were all in the state of of death. Therefore all have died. One has died for all. The love, the love that compels Paul to what? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The love that compels Paul, that makes Paul feel so much pressure that he needs to do something is the love that sent Jesus Christ down from heaven to save us from our sins. Think, think Romans 5, 6 through 8. Whenever it's saying that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly because 
for a righteous person, nobody would die, right? Maybe for a good person, perhaps someone would die. But but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Nobody would die for a sinful, wicked, unrighteous person except for Christ. And so if Christ did that for everyone, if all had died but Christ came to rectify that situation, then why would Paul not tell anybody, right? If, if there is a way out of this mess, then why would Paul not tell everybody? If there is a, a cure for the pain and the sickness and the heartache and the infidelity and the division and the hatred and the racism and the oppression of all kinds, of all people, of all walks of life, if there is a fix for that, then why would we not tell? What's the answer? Jesus. Jesus Christ is the answer. That he loves you so much. Don't lose that love. He loves you so much that he made it possible for you to be with God. He had so much grace on us that he gave up his heavenly position and he became like us in every way, the Hebrew writer says in chapter 2. And he took the punishment for us. Are we compelled like Paul is compelled? Because this grace, this grace that Paul is talking about right here, that should relieve our fear. That should relieve any fear of our judgment. That should relieve any fear of stepping out to talk to somebody about it. There is no reason. Listen, church, there is no reason to be afraid if we have the blood of Jesus on our side. We get that because of his grace. It inspires fear. And it relieves fear. The grace that we have received from God has been offered to all people, and I mean all people. So we need to let them know. We need to let them know. Because if we, if we receive if we receive the Savior, if we're covered in His blood and receive the grace that drives out fear, why wouldn't we? Let's, let's keep going just a little bit. What are, what are we supposed to do? Say that we receive this grace. What are we supposed to do? Verse 15. And He died for all, and Paul means all, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died 
and was raised. For their sake, died and was raised. And we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for the one who took that for us. You hear what Paul's saying? We live to honor God and to glorify Him, to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The love should compel us because it drives out fear. Remember what John says in in 1 John 4.18, that perfect love drives out fear? It relieves our fear. Why would we be afraid any longer? The perfect love drives out fear. What love is more perfect than the love of our Savior? Amen? I heard the silent amens. It's okay. Think about this. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died And was raised. And was raised. There's something really interesting. If you if turn over to Romans chapter one with me for a second. Paul says something really interesting in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to just go ahead and start uh, from the beginning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and, and listen, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You see what Paul's telling you? Jesus Christ, our Lord, through the resurrection from the dead, by the power of the Spirit, was proven to be the Son of God. Was proven to be the one that can take our sins away. To be the one whose blood can forgive us. Through his resurrection. The resurrection proved it. And we have many witnesses letting us know that it was real. Now turn over to Romans chapter 6. A passage that we all know. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The resurrection, it proved Christ to be the Son of God, and it assures us that we too will receive a resurrection if we get into that death with him. See, at the beginning, at the beginning, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. And so he came and he died for us. But now on the flip side, we can be dead to our sins and trespasses and be alive to God. Because of the grace, because of the love 
that compels Paul. We need to root ourselves in that love. Every step, every step of the way needs to be rooted in that love so that we will walk in newness of life with Christ, with the Lord. One day, we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. We will all stand before Him and we will receive what is due to us, for Paul says, what is done in the body, whether good or evil. And this is what you want to hear. Recalling back to Matthew 25. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we're going for. That is what we're running for. And we will spend... Eternity in heaven with the Lord because of the grace that drives out our fear. There should be no more fear. And if you know if you haven't started that, this is always it's always different, you know, at a church that you're visiting at, because I don't know you and you don't know me, and I don't know who's visiting, and I don't know who needs to hear this invitation. So I get to look at all of you and I get to say to all of you. If you haven't started your walk with the Lord, why? If you know that we will appear before the Lord and we will give an account for the things that we have done, we need to make sure that we are on the right side of that. And church... If you haven't been walking right, we need to fix that. Because why would we put on this grace? Why would we put on this blood and then continue walking the same way? We were dead, so Christ came and fixed it for us. Don't keep walking the same way that you were before He fixed it for you. We need to surround ourselves in the grace that drives out fear. The grace that relieves fear. Today, as I was finishing, putting the finishing touches on this thing, I was thinking about Luke chapter 15. This love that compels us, it goes anywhere for us. It forgives all. It comes and it chases us down. God's love is always open for us that we may return to Him if we have strayed away. If you haven't began that walk or you need to fix something, you need to get something right, and you need the prayers here, I I know that there are good ministers and and, and good elders here who love you with the same compulsion that this love of Christ causes and that they will take you in. Even if you've known them for 
for years or you've known Him for minutes, they will take you in and they will help and they will show you the way back. If you haven't, then won't you come while we stand and sing?